As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. A number of years ago, when I was 15, 16, I worked for a few months as an electrician's assistant. It was an alright job, with about 90% of my daily tasks being put the red cable in the red hole, put the black cable in the black hole, and put the green cable in the green hole. It was a small business with just a father, son, and a couple of guys. But running this business was the father in his late 50s and the son in his late 20s. And the son was probably the cheapest man I've ever met. The kind of guy who had reused the same styrofoam cup every day just to save a few cents. So one cold morning I flopped into work to an argument between the father and the son. You see, the son had found a big roll of old electrical cables sitting on a work site and was very keen to use it. The cable was in just awful condition, and it looked like it had been sitting in the sun for half a decade melting. The son was beginning to loudly argue that we should use it for today's job, but the father kept warning him not to use it, saying it would definitely cause him more pain in the end than it's worth. But the son, being the kind of guy he was, was confident, saying, look, I'll put nice plugs on either end and no one will ever know. The customer will never find out. If the ends of the plugs are fine, everything else will be fine. And before the father could retort, he grabbed the old cable chucked it in the van, and we had it off to site. So later that day, we're feeding this dodgy old cable through the walls and into spots, and I could feel it crumbling in my hands. But all he could think about was saving the $100 by using this free load of cable. Once the cable had all been pulled through and secure, we tried putting these nicer plugs on. But even with the nice plugs, nothing worked. Nothing was getting through. Obviously, the cable had broken in a number of spots and crumbled in the walls. But whilst the outside plastic was fine, it was very hard to tell where it had broken. And now that we'd secured it all in place, it was even harder to pull out. Because long story short, it didn't matter how good the plugs were on the end. If the connection in the cable is broken somewhere, then the cable won't work. In the end, it cost him hundreds of dollars with us having to take the cable out of the wall and and redo it again with fresh cable. I know it's a bit odd, but I tell you this story because it reminds me a lot of how Australia and the United States view the Indian Ocean, with great plugs on either end, but dodgy wires for the middle. As it stands today, 80% of the world's trade passes through the Indian Ocean at some point. It is the connection point in East and West, Asia and Europe, Africa and Oceania, and it is most likely the world's most important trade theatre. Yet, when was the last time Indian Ocean defence was placed as a top priority for any government? We constantly talk about the security of the beginning of the routes in the oil terminals in the Middle East and the great ports of Europe, and we consistently monitor the South China Sea, the beginning and end of most of these journeys, but we rarely discuss the journey between these two. We put huge efforts into the plugs, but none on the cable. And if you're in doubt on the disparity, I took an hour this afternoon and went through all of the national news stories here in Australia since April. In that time, India's gone through protests and grain shortages, Sri Lanka has frankly collapsed, Pakistan overthrew a government, Indonesia has tankers captured, Bangladesh is flooding, 
and all of those stories combined affecting billions of people around the world got less coverage in the Australian press than the Chinese security deal in the Solomon Islands and standard exercises by the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea. All plug, no cable. So let's actually take a look at this cord, start to figure out how it works and how we'd fix it if it ever broke. How important is the Indian Ocean to our trade routes and who is gaining the momentum at the moment? And to take us through all that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. The Fight at the End of the Tunnel Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, at this point in time, no one controls the Indian Ocean, which is exactly as it should be. But uh, certainly there's, there's rising concern uh, uh, within the U.S. and certainly many other Western capitals, as well as India, among others, that China is uh, rapidly modernizing its, uh, its navy uh, to the point that it will be able to project so much power in the Indian Ocean region in the coming years that it could pose that threat, uh, where it could be in a position to, to assert control. Michael Kugelman is the Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. and is also a leading specialist on Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan. He's also the editor and co-editor of 11 books and has written for the New York Times, Foreign Policy, and Foreign Affairs on India, water, energy, and food security in the region. He joins us today. So China, of course, is trying to gain influence. It's also trying to pursue uh, this longstanding uh, interest of um, widening access to markets across the world as it tries to address its uh, rapidly growing economy. And so this has entailed, among other things, uh, developing greater uh, ties with countries along the Indian Ocean region, and that includes the, the Southeast Asian states, it includes the littoral states of South Asia, certainly India and Pakistan, but as, as well as uh, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and the Maldives. And this has entailed, um, if you're talking about infrastructure uh, development, this has entailed not only uh, road building, power projects, but also port development. Um, and as, as you would know, uh, there have been some very well chronicled cases of China uh, providing significant levels of assistance to engage in port development projects in southern Pakistan, as well as Sri Lanka. They've been very controversial for a number of reasons, but the bottom line here is that, that those port developments uh, that China has been involved with part of its broader effort to expand its access to markets through what it describes as its Belt and Road Initiative, that has enabled um, China, on the one hand, to uh, strengthen its influence uh, in the seas. But I think the more concerning counter to that 
is the military components of its of its rise and how this plays out in the Indian Ocean region. Can you take us through some of the speculation? Um, a lot of speculation and, quite frankly, a lot of scaremongering about just what type of military power China is able to project in the Indian Ocean region. But we do know that it does have a, uh, a military base in Djibouti, which is, of course, the, the western fringes of the Indian Ocean. Now, separate from that, China has been modernizing its, uh, its, its navy at a very fast rate, as I had mentioned before. And, um, uh, you know, according to the most recent estimates, uh, annually, uh, China is in a position where it can have eight to 10 major naval vessels plying through the Indian Ocean uh, region, which is pretty significant. And there's all, according to uh, recent Pentagon uh, estimates, China could be in a position by as soon as 2013 to have have a dozen new nuclear-powered submarines, uh, broadly speaking. So that's that's pretty significant if you want to think about China, which is already a, a, a significant power, developing its navy to the point that it's able to project a lot of power in the Indian Ocean region, which is a, clearly a key strategic space for the country as it pursues its broader goals. When you speak to Indian naval officers, they all seem to give you the impression that India is being deliberately surrounded by China, who's buying up ports all around India like Chittagong in Bangladesh, Hambantota in Sri Lanka, Fedu Finolu in the Maldives, or Gwada in Pakistan. Is this a deliberate surrounding strategy by China, or just purely economical, as it sits along a pretty crucial ocean waterway? Well, I mean, for a number of years, not just the last few years, but really the last few decades, uh, many Indian officials have been worried about what they perceive to be efforts by China to um, in circle and even entrap uh, India through what Indian officials have described as a, uh, a string of pearls strategy, which essentially entails China uh, investing in, in port facilities in countries around uh, India, such as the ones you mentioned in, in Bangladesh and uh, uh, Sri Lanka and Pakistan in order to be in a position to really hem India in, so to speak. Some of those fears may be exaggerated, but you know, as I had mentioned before, I mean, there are several cases, several chronicled cases, where uh, China has been able to develop a, an overt military presence in the Indian Ocean uh, region. And many in Washington, uh, and certainly New Delhi, fear that there's going to be a lot more of that in the coming years. Now, to the question of, more broadly speaking, should we be worried about military components or military implications of China's deepening expanse, its expansion, its, its deepening footprint in the Indian Ocean region. Uh, obviously, it depends on your point of view. Uh, obviously, Beijing and, and supporters of China would say, well, look, no, this is just a, a case of uh, China pursuing its economic goals. It's trying to hasten access to, to markets. It's got a growing economy. There's a surging demand for, for energy resources and so much more. And so that entails China um, deploying resources um, in the seas around the world to put it in a better position to secure those, those goods, those non-military goods, and to convey them back to China. Um, but then there, there are those that would take a very different view, which certainly would be the view in, in, in New Delhi and in Washington. And I think any of the countries that embrace the, the Indo-Pacific policy uh, put out there by the United States, which is meant to counter China. And there the goal would be, well, or the idea would be, you know, China is competing with the United States and countries in the, with the West for, for primacy and for power. And uh, it is a country that has taken on increasingly uh, nationalistic policies in recent years, including in maritime spaces, where we've seen it 
um, step up provocations in disputed uh, islands in the South China Sea. It is trying to essentially assert its interests and its goals more aggressively than it has in the past. Uh, there is the track record with the military base in Djibouti, and that must suggest that invariably there must be some type of military component to this. And again, looking at the uh, at the, the the progress with the naval modernization um, in in recent years, so it really depends on on the perspective you have, and I think it really comes down to what has long been a debate within uh, academic. Um, uh, academic forums, as well as some policy forums, as to what type of power does China want to be? Does it want to be a military power and an economic power, or does it just want to remain an economic power? Uh, I would probably be inclined to say both uh, military and economic, but certainly there are those that, that think very differently and think that it's it's inappropriate and completely wrong to ascribe these um, militaristic assumptions about China and what it plans to do. But it's not just China has been building up in the Indian Ocean. For one, let's talk about India's building up in this theatre. India has been investing into its facilities in the Maldives. They've been building up their facilities in Oman. They've also been improving their listening station or base, depending on who you ask, in Ansia Ramana and in Madagascar. And that doesn't even include the large-scale improvements to the Indian facilities on the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, about 500 kilometres west of Myanmar and Thailand, and about 200 kilometres north of Indonesia's most northern tip in Aceh. The most obvious one, though, is the investment by India into modernizing their navy. So why is the navy all of a sudden taking such a higher priority when it comes to funding for the Indian Armed Forces? India has been affecting its own form of military modernization, and naval modernization has been a big part of that. And I would actually argue that uh, India's own naval modernization goes back quite a few decades, um, perhaps even to the beginning of the modern era of globalization in the early 1990s when India... Uh, liberalized its trade policies and became much more active in global trade regimes. And obviously it recognized that the, the seas are such an important component of global trade. And at that point it recognized that it needed to, to strengthen its navy so that it had the capacity to project power and, and protect uh, in Indian uh, economic and trade assets at, the, at seas. And I think that the energy factor is critical here as well. Um, naval officials in India would very soon recognize that <clears throat> India's need to project energy assets and, and sea lanes um, were essential because India, like China, had an economy that was starting to grow at a rapid rate and that entailed a significant need for energy resources and India was in a position where it did not have enough um, energy resources at home to meet the widening demand of its population. So it had to look further afield overseas for energy resources. And uh, you know, you got some pretty volatile um, spaces at sea, whether you're talking about the, Mal the Malacca Strait or the Strait of Hormuz or whatever the case may be, Indian naval officials recognized that they needed to have a stronger navy to protect these these assets and these energy assets and this this energy trade but indeed I think the other major uh, motivation for for India's naval modernization in recent years has been China's rise and its own naval modernization um, and you can go back uh, more than a decade back to around around the year 2010 um, even back then, there was talk of, on, in official circles in New Delhi, of plans to introduce up to 100 new warships over the next decade. Don't think India's gotten to that point, but you'll see that there were pretty ambitious goals going back uh, quite a few years. But India has intensified these efforts as China has 
held up its presence in the Indian Ocean region, which of course is, is so close to home for, for India. And I should say, it's really China's efforts to scale up its presence in the Western Indian Ocean region, which is closest to home for India. Uh, and particularly as China has strengthened its relations with Maldives, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, the littoral states of South Asia, countries that India has historically had good relations with, uh, and since China established that military base in Djibouti. Uh, and I would finally say here, this doesn't get enough play, I don't think, but um, maybe one of the newest, uh, biggest flashpoints for potential co naval competition, maritime competition between India and China, is further to the east in the Andaman Sea. Um, so you know, in 2020, a Chinese research vessel was discovered off the Andaman Sea. And that's pretty significant for India because the Andaman Sea is a really key strategic space. It links the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Oceans near the Malacca Strait. India also has uh, island territories um, in, that, in that area. So the, for all these reasons, the short of it is, is to say that, yes, India is very keen on strengthening its capacity on developing the ability to project naval power at sea. Now, it's far behind what China has been able to do. It's not going to be able to catch up quite real, quite, quite candidly, but it wants to do um, what it can. But it's going to have to do a lot to even get to the point where it's getting closer to achieve parity with China. And that comes down to, it, to other issues, particularly involving the constraints to the development of an indigenous uh, naval um, uh, material production capacity. Um, India has famously uh, struggled with um, uh, defense production systems at home and defense um, procurement systems. There's been a lot of issues there, a lot of issues with, with equipment that's not updated, and that all makes it more difficult for it to focus on modernizing its navy. As with any country in the world, there's always an internal competition between the Navy and the Army, who are both competing for larger shares of the same pool of money internally. Traditionally, the Indian Army has been given priority, largely due to the fact that India's two main strategic rivals of China and Pakistan share long land borders with India, and navies also aren't particularly useful for quelling internal riots or rebellions either. Do you think that these permanent geographical problems will always prevent India from really putting its naval goals first? Yes, absolutely. That is a that is a key factor, and and many Indian um, experts, and certainly experts from outside of India, have decried what appears to be a lack of a uh, of a willingness to focus on um, a broader strategic view of India's uh, security threats, particularly one that has indeed evolved in recent years. And it's true that for many years India perceived its major threat to be a land one. Uh, with Pakistan and certainly with China as well, because India has fought multiple land wars with both Pakistan and, and well, but with, with China and especially with Pakistan over the years. And only more recently has it started to perceive the, the threat to its national security interests posed by, uh, by the sea and efforts by its rivals to use the sea to target it. I think that perhaps one tar uh, turning point came back in 2008 when uh, Pakistani terrorists staged a uh, horrific uh, attacks in the in the Indian port city of Mumbai and those terrorists arrived in Mumbai by boat um, and that was that was a pretty wa big wake-up call for for India um, for sure but indeed I think it's really over the last few years as China has developed more clout in the parts of the Indian Ocean region the western Indian Ocean region parts closest to to India that's where I think you started to see a, a shift. But I do think that naval planners uh, in India were picking up on these evolving threats a lot earlier than uh, 
officials more broadly in the military and other um, branches of the military were. So you've had some really sharp thinkers within the Navy and other and naval analysts that have been pushing India to broaden its its scope and its threat perceptions to go well beyond land-based ones. The Indian Ocean is much bigger than just China and India, though. The Middle East sharing coastline as well as exporting huge amounts of their oil through the Indian Ocean. So why is it, though, that whilst China, India, and Australia focus on large blue water navies, the Middle Eastern states like UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar focus mostly on smaller, more coastal fighting fleets? Well, I'd come back to the energy issue here. Uh, one of the reasons, and not the only reason, one of the big reasons why India and China have sought to develop the capacity to project naval power far beyond um, their shores is in order to, to protect energy trade. I mean, these are countries that are heavily dependent on energy imports from far away. Now, if you look at the, the Gulf states um, in, in the Middle East, you know, these are countries that are oil producers, they're energy producers, and very famously so. So they don't need to worry about developing the capacity to protect their energy interests in far-flung areas because they can just depend on what they have uh, at home. I think that's a big factor right there. And beyond that, I think you know they don't uh, have um, great power aspirations, uh, so to speak. Uh, they they just much fo- more focused on other things. But uh, they certainly have the money. They have the capacity to produce weaponry. I mean, we're talking about an oil-producing states that uh, that are always in a pre- in, in in a good place. Um, but I think that uh, you know, India and China just have a different, uh, different, very different motivations, different um, imperatives for what they have to do to address their economic and specifically their their energy interests, and that requires them to uh, to develop the capacity to project power more deeply and further, much further out um, into the seas than would be the case with any of the countries. Um, in the Middle East. And there are also just broader geopolitical issues here as well. I mean, India and China, of course, are long-standing strategic rivals. And so when India sees its biggest strategic rival um, modernizing its military, it can't just sit pat. Whereas, you know, for the Gulf states, you know, geopolitically, I mean, they're big players, but they're not involved in these large uh, geopolitical rivalries. I mean, sure, there's the Saudi Arabia-Iran rivalry, that's with that's a regional rivalry that's within the region it's, it doesn't expand more globally uh, because these are countries that are all in the same region well talking about navies let's stay on iran iran holds huge leverage based on the fact that it could use its navy to sink ships and close the strait of hormuz between iran and the uae and closing off the strait of hormuz is a very big deal as it cuts off all the ports for the Iraqis, the Kuwaitis, the Eastern Saudis, the Qataris, and the majority of the Emirati ports as well. It's a very, very big card for Tehran to be able to play. So Indian analysts have been looking at this and claiming that in a decade with a lot of investment, the Indians could look to have enough naval power to be able to close the end of the Strait of Malacca between Indonesia and Malaysia. This would be a gargantuan move, as just over 40% of the world's trade passes through the Malacca Strait. Do you think that with an Indian doctrinal pivot toward a naval priority, that they would be able to pull this off in the case of a large-scale war? Well, I'm not sure they have the capacity to do so. I'm not sure they would want to do that. Uh, and I think also that India does not have... I mean, India talks about deepening its relations with East Asian, Southeast Asian countries. Um, it has this Act East policy, which is meant to strengthen ties with countries of, of East and Southeast Asia. but. It doesn't really have 
I think, deep enough relations with those countries to be in a position to be having those types of conversations. But certainly, I mean, it, it, I mean, you talk about the the Malacca Strait, even the Hormuz, the Strait of Hormuz. I mean, these are key areas for India. If you assume, as is likely be the case, that it's um, it, it'll, its dependence on energy imports from the Middle East um, will grow. And if you also, if you assume that it could develop energy relationships with com- some of the countries in Southeast Asia, which I think is also possible. India has explored some energy agreements with Vietnam and it already is, uh, Indonesia has long been a key source um, of coal uh, exports to, to India, um, as I recall. So, you know, that's that in of itself suggests that um, it's going to be looking at these choke points, these sea-based choke points with um, a fair amount of concern. But India doesn't have the leverage, certainly doesn't have the power to be in a position to unilaterally um, you know, control or shut down these, these spaces. And at any rate, it wouldn't want to do that unless it's working multilaterally with, with other, other countries in the region. So we are seeing India taking its soft power in this theater quite seriously, particularly when it comes to its programs like Neighborhood First. Neighborhood First being a much more localized, Indian-style Belt and Road Initiative program. But how does India's Neighborhood First program compare to China's Belt and Road Initiative, and which one seems to be producing better results for their countries? Well, I mean, of course, I mean, India has the advantage in the, geographically because it's it's in the region. Uh, so it's easier for it to engage with these countries because it doesn't have to travel anywhere and, and so on. It's already there. And also, India does have a... Um, there's a legacy of deep Indian, not deep, but significant levels of partnership with many of the littoral countries of, of South Asia, obviously excluding Pakistan. But you know, you look at countries like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Maldives. I mean, sure, there have been there have been some turbulent moments for India's relations with those countries, but generally they've been there's that that rich history. And even further afield, away from the naval space, uh, Nepal and Bhutan or other areas, other countries where India has long has a long history of good relations, even if there's been some turbulence in more recent years. But but China is coming um, hard and heavy. Uh, it really has been very present, and it's used two main vehicles to expand its footprint in South Asia. One, which has been going on for, for, for a long time, is, as we've already been discussed, infrastructure assistance. And this is tied to its Belt and Road initiative now, but even before Belt and Road, it was very present. It was increasingly present in just about every country in South Asia to provide assistance for, uh, you know, for power projects, for roads, for bridges, for ports um, as well. All part of this broader economic goal of Beijing to facilitate access to to energy markets, to trade markets, and and so on. And you look at if you look at the amount of money that's been put down. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to try to estimate because there's so many wildly fluctuating estimates. But China has has deployed a lot of capital to South Asia for infrastructure assistance. Difference between China and India. China is a uh, it's an authoritarian state, and uh, it's when it wants to do something, it can mobilize and do it. Whereas in India, you know, whenever there's a new policy or a new initiative, you know, there's a process that has to play out. The key stakeholders and buy-in has to come from different government agencies. There's a huge bureaucracy which of course is bypassed in China. And so even if India is ready to make a big move to announce some type of new infrastructure 
uh, development program in one particular country, it can't happen quickly. It takes time. It moves slowly. And that's that's something that China exploits to its advantage because it's able to move quickly. So, you know, bottom line is um, China has really made major headway. And, uh, you know, if you look at just very sort of overt uh, reflections of Chinese increased presence in the region, you know, you have a lot of Chinese nationals, Chinese workers, who are based in uh, countries around the region, many more so than had been the case uh, in the past. And if you go even to a country like Nepal, um, that for quite some time did not have much of an extensive Chinese presence, you're starting to hear more about Chinese restaurants cropping up. Um, and, uh, you know, China had been uh, working very closely with the previous um, uh, prime minister in Nepal, who has since um, been shown the door. But uh, yeah, there's just much more of a, of a visible Chinese presence in these South Asian countries. And obviously that's very concerning for India because this is its biggest strategic rival, stepping up its strategic game in India's backyard. Do you think the Indian Ocean will ever become as contentious something like the South China Sea with a number of different nations competing for influence in there? I think that there's there's fewer fault lines, at least now, in the, in the Indian Ocean region, the Western Indian Ocean, compared to the South China Sea. I mean, you don't have the level of a an, an, number of territorial disputes, island disputes in the Indian Ocean that you do in the South China Sea. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I mean, the Andaman Islands, I mean, that certainly is a space to watch because, you know, as I had said before, you know, India discovered a Chinese research vessel near the Andaman Sea. Um, and given the proximi proximity to these Andaman Islands that India um, has, that that could be something to watch uh, down the road. But, you know, I think that you don't have the type of, of, of the, the intensity of these territorial disputes, island disputes, in these areas of, of these waters near India in the West Indian Ocean compared to what you have further to the east. But obviously the thing to watch is China's continuing naval modernizations and what it's able to do um, in the Indian Ocean region in terms of projecting power. I mean, is it going to militarize any of these port development projects in South Asia? Gwadar would be the possibility, but again, progress has been very slow there. Its relationship with Pakistan, which is very close, means that um, you know if it is able to develop that port, you know, Pakistan is the one country that would not necessarily uh, stand in the way of China wanting to use that base as a military facility for naval vessels. If it does, then you got could have major problems uh, involving China. Um, and, and India, uh, you know, the terror, the terrorism issue shouldn't be shouldn't be overlooked. We talked before about how the Mumbai attacks were staged by terrorists coming from the sea. God forbid if we were to have other attacks like that, um, or if you were just if you were to have terrorists attacking coastal areas, ports, uh, or even ships on the high sea in the Indian Ocean region, that would be cause for concern. But again, that's not happening as much. And certainly there's been a lot more maritime terrorism in Southeast Asia. I mean, I should say the terror group Abu Sayyaf, which is, uh, you know, has had a presence in, in the Philippines and Indonesia, they've been the, the, the king of, of terrorist attacks on ships on the high seas. You know, you look at some of these Pakistani terror groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba, uh, or even Al-Qaeda in, in Pakistan, which have carried out attacks uh, in Pakistan on naval bases, naval facilities. Again, it's, it's, it's the minority. Um, I think that it's, it's terror groups elsewhere, further afield uh, in Southeast Asia that pose a bigger threat um, uh, of terrorism. But again, can't be complacent for sure. And what about for an outside power like the United States? 
you think they're about to take the Indian Ocean far more seriously, or frankly it will always play second fiddle to other theatres like the Mediterranean or the South China Sea? I, I think that um, due to the the geographies of Southeast Asia, uh, it's it's clear that the South China Sea will always be the core focus um, for the United States, or at least for the foreseeable future, just because of the presence of its treaty allies there. It does not have any treaty allies uh, in the Indian Ocean region, in the Western Indian Ocean region. India, of course, is a close partner, but it's not an ally. It's certainly not a treaty ally. But... That said, I do think that we're seeing an evolution in thinking in Washington uh, that's really goes back to the Obama era in terms of the need to look at the Indian Ocean region as an increasingly critical space. And you, know, you go back to the Obama era, um, during that administration, there was a strategy document that was published that um, I believe, um, not, not necessarily in these words, but uh, it suggested that the Indian Ocean is now the second most strategically important ocean to U.S. interests uh, after only the uh, the Atlantic, um, and that's that's pretty that's pretty significant um, right there. Um, uh, and I think that certainly the the establishment of the Chinese base in Djibouti that's that's huge. I mean, that was a game changer um, for sure. And I think also sort of linking the Indian Ocean region to the South China Sea, um, you know, if, if U.S. officials, planners are looking, sort of gaming out the risks of a conflict in the South China Sea, whether over the, uh, the, the disputed islands or over in Taiwan, if China were to invade Taiwan, you know, these are, those, are, those would be conflicts that would impact U.S. interests in a big way. And so if the U.S. were in a position where it needed to get supplies there um, to provide support to allies, um, the Indian Ocean region would be significant because it would need to use that, that ocean to get supplies there. And if China is there, uh, if it's developed so much power that it's in a, in a position to control that space or parts of it, that could pose significant uh, uh, threats to U.S. interests, um, for sure. So I think that we are starting to see U.S. officials understand the need, at the very least, to to acknowledge the linkages between you know the Pacific Ocean and then also you know like the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Western Indian Ocean. They're all linked and they're all related uh, in ways that could impact U.S. interests in a big way. But final point here. You know, many, many analysts of, of South Asia and especially maritime issues in South Asia have long argued that if you really want to get the U.S. to be looking strategically at these broader maritime spaces more effectively, and in particular in ways that will help strengthen cooperation with India, it's time to do away with this bureaucratic um, reality of dividing the 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 maritime regions into different commands, right? I mean, as you know, you have PACOM, or actually, I guess it's called Indo-PACOM now, which basically is a military command that um, uh, manages developments uh, in in East Asia uh, and also India. Uh, whereas CENTCOM or Central Command is a military command that um, that looks at Pakistan. So basically, for bureaucratic reasons, uh, you know, the U.S. has split. India and Pakistan up, and that obviously has maritime implications because uh, you know these are littoral states. So I think it would make a lot more sense for the U.S. government bureaucracy to be you know looking at this region as a broader whole. But so long as you have separate commands, that sort of makes it more difficult to do. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. 
To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. To ignore the Indian Ocean and just focus on the South China Sea is like driving from New York to Los Angeles and only looking up directions for the first 10 minutes of the journey. The Indian Ocean is a huge part of the journey for oil and goods traveling between Europe, Africa and the Middle East and the East Asian Oceanic markets. But with so many players sharing parts of the Indian Ocean's coastline, which of these nations are looking to stake their claim on the middle of the world's trade route? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. The Traffic Stop I think there's a possibility that parts of the Indian Ocean will become similar to the South China Sea in terms of being intense zones of competition for influence and control. Uh, in a book that I published back in 2015, I suggested that the key zones of contention uh, could be the Bay of Bengal and the Arabian Sea, uh, one to India's east, one to India's west. Uh, the reason for that is uh, that the Bay of Bengal is crucial for access to the Malacca Straits uh, and uh, therefore uh, for uh, those uh, sea transportation routes through Southeast Asia to Northeast Asia. Michael Wesley is a Professor of International Relations and Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne. He was also previously the Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific Studies at Australian National University and has written various books on the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific. We're thrilled to have him join us today. No, look, I think the Indian Ocean is an increasing priority for three of the four Quad members. India obviously has a long history of strategic planning around the Indian Ocean. Uh, the United States uh, has changed uh, the nomenclature of um, its regional command to be from Pacific Command to Indo-Pacific Command with a very clear remit uh, to focus on the Indian Ocean as much as it focuses on the Pacific. And, uh, and Australia, I think, discovered its Indian Ocean coastline uh, over, over a decade ago and has uh, started really to ramp up its diplomacy and its strategic planning around the Indian Ocean. So, you know, that, that leaves just one of the quad countries, Japan, without a substantive Indian Ocean presence and interest. So I think, um, I, I think you could say that the quad is, uh, is likely to take a great interest in the Indian Ocean. A nation we haven't talked about a lot in this piece yet is Australia, who does have a large naval base on the west coast here in Perth, looking out toward the Indian Ocean. Although the Indian Ocean has become crucial according to most Australian planners, it always seems to be looking further north or into Southeast Asia. As an example, between the Australian embassy in Cairo and the Australian High Commission in South Africa, there's around 10,000 kilometres of coastline. 
about the same distance as London to Singapore. Yet between those two points, Australia only has one African embassy on the coast, and that's in Kenya. So why is Australia talking so much about wanting to be a powerhouse in the Indian Ocean, yet forgetting and ignoring almost the entirety of East Africa? It's an interesting one. I think that the place of, of the Indian Ocean, what I would call Southern Asia uh, in Australian foreign policy, so that is uh, South Asia uh, and the Gulf region, less so East Africa, uh, has yet to be properly articulated in Australian foreign policy. While Australian foreign policy is very sophisticated and has a long history of articulating the east coast of Asia in its foreign policy, it's less sophisticated and less developed in relation to the southern coast of Asia. And I think that is a uh, development in Australian foreign policy that is long overdue and, uh, and needs to be built out by future Australian governments. I want to get your take on an opinion that seems to be cropping up more and more in a lot of foreign policy circles at the moment. And the opinion is that the Indian Ocean is not as important because China can do without it. That Central Asia, Europe and Russia can supply China with everything it needs over land. What would you say to that? Well, I don't think that statement is true. I mean, if you look at the scale of China's uh, energy demand, particularly um, its uh, liquid hi- uh, hydrocarbon demand, and you look at the patterns of, of trade, uh, China is uh, highly dependent on the Gulf region uh, for a significant proportion of its energy. And that that is that is not something that is going down. The fact is that energy is a large, bulky commodity. Uh, it's very hard and it's very expensive uh, to transport that commodity. And, and the easiest way to ship it uh, or to transport it uh, at the lowest cost is by sea. Uh, I don't see those trends changing. Uh, and uh, I certainly don't think that, Ru- that Russia alone uh, can supply the scale of demand that China has uh, on its own um, overland. Well, if China is going to be relying on the Indian Ocean routes for a long time, they'll be hoping their investments here and will be paying off. But with Guadal being attacked by separatists recently, and the Pakistan government being ousted for a far more debatable US-friendly one, or even Sri Lanka collapsing recently economically, many of China's projects along this route aren't as solid as they seemed to be about six months ago. So has China's string of pearls in the Indian Ocean been a success or a failure? Well, I, I'm, I'm a bit sceptical about um, the string of pearls, to be honest. I think the string of pearls is uh, a, a bit alarmist. I, I, I think Chinese strategy is a lot more open and fluid than that. I think China certainly, uh, if it can develop on a, st- a sustainable basis, uh, bases in the Indian Ocean, it certainly will. But I don't think its strategy is predicated on developing bases in the Indian Ocean. I think actually uh, its strategy in the Indian Ocean is based heavily around nuclear-powered and armed submarines, uh, which were which would be able to operate uh, for extended periods in the Indian Ocean and against which it's very difficult uh, to devise countermeasures. Um, so, look, uh, while bases are useful, I think uh, they're not the be-all and end-all, if you like, of, of China's strategic interests 
in the Indian Ocean. And its, its main interest is to make sure that no other power can threaten its, uh, its shipping through the Indian Ocean. And, and the best way of doing that is by providing the sort of deterrent capabilities that uh, a large fleet of nuclear arms uh, and, and powered submarines in the Indian Ocean would be able to supply. Do you think these submarines are what the Indians are worried about as well? Is that why they're building these gigantic sound sensors in the Andaman Sea coming out of the Strait of Malacca? Absolutely, yeah. I'm sure India is uh, is planning uh, a range of anti-submarine uh, capabilities and capacities. Um, and, uh, and I think probably Australia and the United States are doing, uh, are thinking along very similar lines. So I think... Uh, you know, I think we're going to a, uh, a, a state where the Indian Ocean will be, you know, in, in the decades to come, a highly contested zone of, of, uh, of, of sea denial, where you will have a number of countries with quite sophisticated um, uh, capabilities in uh, mainly based around sub submarine warfare, um, uh, you know, both... Uh, offering deterrent effect, but also um, counter-deterrent uh, capabilities. If Australia is going to be taking the Indian Ocean as seriously as it probably should, do you think we will build up facilities near the Darwin or Broome or Perth or the Christmas Island or even Diego Garcia to facilitate larger groups of ships and attack forces? Yeah, look, I, I think um, the Western Australian coast is probably a likely place where we'll see um, significant investment in uh, naval basing capabilities, mainly looking at uh, the United States and Australian uh, capabilities, but possibly offering them also to Indian and Japanese uh, maritime capabilities um, over time. Uh, and and I think you know this is uh, this is something that uh, has already been flagged by Australia and and possibly will be a, an area of further investment. Look, I think probably the, the further investment in um, HMAS Sterling in, in Western Australia is, is, is most likely in my view. My sense is that uh, you tend to invest in facilities that are already there and, and expand on them rather than building new facilities. If the US or Australia do start building up their bases in Western Australia, do you think China will look to counter that by building bases in either East Africa or Pakistan or somewhere in this vicinity to counter that move? Look, quite possibly. I think, you know, they're, they're quite obviously interested still in, in Sri Lanka as well. Um, and, um, and depending on how things go in Myanmar, there's the possibility that, uh, that the Chinese may uh, get uh, the Myanmar government to agree to a Chinese-built facility that, that can be used for naval purposes in Myanmar as well. So I think all of those um, options are probably on, on the table. And how would New Delhi react to a base starting up in Myanmar? Oh, not, not, not with a great amount of, uh, of welcoming. I think it would be a very unwelcome development. Um, India has uh, sort of been very clever, I think, in uh, resolving territorial disputes in the Bay of Bengal in a consensual way. And, uh, and I think that sort of brought strategic goodwill towards India from uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar. 
but you know uh, there is t turmoil in Myanmar at the moment, and uh, China is the is the major power that has really backed Myanmar. So whether there would be a quid pro quo of um, uh, you know a, a Chinese built base in Myanmar as a uh, as a as an exchange for supporting the military junta in Myanmar is is I think very much a live option. Well, let's turn to the other side of India now and talk about Pakistan, where Pakistan has just signed a big deal with Istanbul for Turkey to help modernize the Pakistani Navy. If we look at the Indian Navy, though, who are they likely to turn to to help with their modernization? Do you think it'll be the United States, or will they turn back toward Russia, or try and build up their own domestic facilities for this purpose? Oh, look, I think they'll go with a range of options, to be honest. I don't think the United States or some of the European powers should be taken off the table. I think Indian military acquisitions across the board reflect, um, you know, a, a very sober calculation of where India might get the best equipment uh, for the best price uh, that best fits in with India's defence needs. So I, I do think there are a range of options for the Indians and uh, and and uh, the acquisition of defence technology that can then be built out in India is also another option as well. Well, in that case, do you think this is the beginning of a new naval arms race inside the Indian Ocean? Oh, look, I think we already are to, to an extent. I think that um, China's capabilities are uh, causing other countries, not just India, to invest in their own capabilities. And I think that we're seeing across the Indo-Pacific, actually, um, much greater investment in military capabilities, particularly maritime-enabled uh, capabilities. So a new arms race is beginning in the Indian Ocean, with China, India, Pakistan, Australia, the UK, and even the United States, all racing to solidify their positions. But how deep do these mutual goals go? Looking at an agreement like the Quad, where it's almost implied that India will come to the defense of Japan if China invades, but would Australia come to defend India if Pakistan were to invade? So analysts are beginning to speculate about the direction of the Indian Ocean. Will it become a fractured battle with the local influence between all of these powers, or will it become a two-horse race between East and West? Well, for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 3. Not enough ships to go round. Uh, you know, one of the things that's been really striking is since the re-establishment of the Quad in 2017, it started off at a very sort of uh, working level, occasional meeting, there were no readouts in 2017. But by 2020, the Biden administration coming in really decided to take this very seriously off the bat. And I think it's a collective decision by the four governments to that they realize that these are the four key essential partners for each other in the region. Uh, that there's a big drop-off after those four, um, and that India's bilateral relations, uh, just as importantly, with the US, with Japan, and with Australia has has really improved uh, and taken significant strides in the past few years. So I, I think you have that level of trust and familiarity that wasn't there 10 years ago, that is there today. And that has allowed um, uh, India, and, and the other partners, but India as well, to take the Quad very seriously. Um, and two other dimensions to it, I think you know, that, that's one element. The two is I think the threat perception has changed. So, 
you know, uh, I, I think prior to 2017, there still was a very open debate in India, as there were in other places, about what what would a more uh, a larger, more powerful China really do, really behave like, uh, and a combination of things. I think the Belt and Road Initiative in early 2017, the Belt and Road Forum specifically, um, the uh, Doklam uh, standoff between India and China in, in the summer of 2017. Um, and then just some general COVID and, and the, some general Chinese assertiveness in the region, the 2020 clashes between Indian and Chinese troops, all of that really has increased the uh, threat perception in India of, of China. So that's, I think, a, a second factor. And, and finally, I would say some, what has really changed in the last year and a half, it's, it's really been quite recent, have been the sort of sinews of cooperation amongst the four Quad countries. Uh, and today, I mean, you know, they're meeting of of senior naval officials just today in Australia or yesterday, um, there was um, a meeting of cybersecurity uh, officials from the four countries a, a month or so ago. Uh, the four like uh, co- combatant commander equivalents uh, met in in Delhi uh, earlier this month. Um, so I mean the 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 regularity and the 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 frequency and and breadth of contacts between the four governments has really uh, taken off in the last year and a half. Dhruvijay Shankar is the director of the U.S. Initiative of ORF in New Delhi. Previously, he was also a fellow of foreign policy at Brookings, India and Brookings, Washington, D.C. Dhruv is one of the leading voices on foreign policy when it comes to India, and we're thrilled to have him back on the show today. Um, no, so so I think it's a, it's a different uh, issue. So obviously for India, the priority region is the Indian Ocean. I mean, I think there's no question about that. You look at your own security. And, and so, the, you know, the, the, the land boundaries with China and Pakistan and the Indian Ocean are, are obviously the, the first priority for India. Um, India is unusual in that it's perhaps, along with the U.S., perhaps the only uh, Navy that is able to have sustained a sustained presence from you know the Gulf of Aden to the Straits of Malacca, so the pretty much most of the the breadth of the Indian Ocean. Uh, other countries, Australia, France, um, others have have sort of a smaller presence, but India is is able to to just by virtue of its geography, uh, able to operate in a, in a very wide uh, theater. Its its current um, ability to operate east of the Malacca Straits is uh, there uh, compared to um, other countries, but but much more limited. Um, and uh, so, you know, traditionally, India sends out one to two flotillas uh, into the Western Pacific per year. Um, they do a combination of exercises, operations, port visits um, in uh, in Southeast Asia, in with Japan, with the United States, with Russia, even. Um, uh, and th- that has sort of traditionally been the, the the extent of India's security presence, at least east of the Malacca Straits. Um, the economic presence, of course, has, has improved. Uh, India has sort of trade agreements with many countries, including recently with Australia, uh, but traditionally with Japan, South Korea, and ASEAN as well. Uh, and so uh, it does have interests east of east of Malacca as well. But it, it, it's a great it's, it's grown a little bit recently. Um, so, for example, you have Indian P-8. Uh, these are mar- mar- maritime uh, reconnaissance aircrafts. They now uh, fly more frequently into the Pacific. Um, but, you know, I think what this really comes to what the key issue in the Quad is, which is it's really about burden sharing. Um, and it's about the ability. It's not just about ev- all four countries having to have a presence in the entire Indo-Pacific all at once. It's actually about being able to coordinate their presences so that they are able to they all have limited resources and are they're able to complement each other's efforts um, uh, better so so in some ways 
you know, I think that's less of a question about how how often and how much India can contribute east of Malacca, as long as it is able to to uh, fulfill its extent, uh, its its share of the burden. When we look at past Indian doctrines and white papers, we can see that traditionally the Indian Army has been given the priority when it comes to funding, largely due to the fact that India's two main strategic rivals, Pakistan and China, both have large land borders with India. Do you think this is a permanent geographic problem that will lock in their doctrines to be very land heavy? Or do you think we'll see a pivot like the United States or Australia has done to see a much more naval heavy doctrine inside the country's white papers? So the, it's actually on the land side, it's less uh, Pakistan. I mean, uh, so tr- again, traditionally to about roughly two thirds of India's army has been Pakistan focused or, or related to Pakistan related insurgencies. Um, about one third has been focused on China related contingencies. But we've seen a slight rebalance just in the last few years as the um, uh, the standoff continues, in fact, between India and China on their disputed boundary and has become much more militarized in, since 2020. Um, it's been two years now. Um, so on the land front, I think that that's been the sort of reallocation of resources somewhat. The Navy has traditionally been the smallest of the services, but again, relative to, you know, the Indian Navy is still significantly larger than the Australian Navy. Um, uh, so, you know, in in the region, really, you know, it's the US and now China, which is undergoing, is undertaking a major naval buildup, um, to some extent, Japan. Um, South Korea is actually a significant Navy, but but much more focused on, on peninsular issues and in its immediate near abroad. But really, apart from that, the Indian Navy is still one of the the, the largest and most capable blue water navies in the region. Uh, it has traditionally been the the, the least um, uh, resourced of the three services, the smallest. Um, that has increased somewhat. So, in terms of capital expenditure, uh, which is not the not on personnel, uh, it is it is roughly one third the total um, uh, budget uh, that uh, allocated to uh, defense. So, you know, it's roughly actually the Air Force is, a, is slightly more. Uh, Army and, and, and Navy. Um, the uh, this year, uh, in fact, just this February, uh, the latest Indian defense budget has promised a much bigger, a significant increase in allocation um, to the Indian Navy. Um, but again, there I think the question marks about you know how much of that will actually be dispersed and whether that can be sustained over the long run. But there was a noticeable bump in uh, both the Navy and the Coast Guard uh, budget uh, just this year. Well, one of the big questions around India at the moment is caused by the war in Ukraine, with India still looking toward Russia as its largest arms supplier, but Russia coming under increasing pressure for the international community. Do you think we'll see India ramp up its efforts to diversify its arms trade away from Moscow, or is this far more difficult than most people would imagine it to be with the current state of the indigenous Indian arms industry? So, uh... I think a couple of things. So the trend line has been pretty consistent. So prior to 2014, prior to the Russian annexation of Crimea and the uh, uh, war in the Donbas, about 80% of Indian uh, defense imports came from Russia. That dropped pretty significantly after 2014 to about 60%. Uh, and the last few years, that's 2019, 2020, it was actually dipped under 50%. About 45% of uh, Russian imports came from uh, of Indian imp- defense imports came from Russia. Um, so I expect, even if it were not for the war in Ukraine, that trend line would continue in that India would continue to diversify, not cut off, but diversify uh, away from Russia to have, uh, you know, particularly to the benefit of U.S., um, French and Israeli defense suppliers, as well as a few others, U.K., South Korea, a few others. Um, now, the war has actually changed 
quite a lot because it, amongst other things it's not a no, not just a matter of choice uh russia may not be able to supply india with uh, a lot of key equipment anymore uh for largely three reasons one is it doesn't have excess inventory in certain key areas it's it's actually having to use a lot of its own um uh defense equipment uh for uh, in the war with ukraine so it doesn't have enough to export to other countries a second factor is the sanctions or the the threat of sanctions uh including on intermediaries and and others so it's not simply about a government to government arrangement even you know private sector actors involved in the defense trade could be subject to sanctions and many of those have uh exposure to uh the US and to US allies the third factor is actually the the russian supply chain has will will have been disrupted quite significantly so it's quite a a lot of components you know from from chips to you know um uh, subsystems uh to you know metals and and other things um actually come from from the us and its allies including from europe so russia's defense export industry is really going to be hit hard by um by the war and its um and, and the sanctions that have followed so i think we're we're at a stage right now where it's not just whether india wants to buy from russia it just won't be able to do a lot of stuff again it won't happen overnight there, there there's still lots of legacy issues um and legacy equipment that will continue um and perhaps uh, you know there's no in- intent on india's part to completely cut off ties with russia defense including defense ties but i i do think this reality will will has hit harder so that's led to a bit of a predicament and i think it'll be solved by a combination of factors it'll be some indigenous production in in areas where india is capable and this will require a crash program in the near future um some of it will be uh filling it uh, f- filling up uh, orders for key equipment from other uh, suppliers this could be other operators of russian equipment and that includes countries like poland and bulgaria and the us is trying to play a facilitating role in this uh, respect or it could be um uh for in, in some cases completely different systems uh, say israeli systems or french systems the third there will be a category of of things particularly sensitive issues where um uh where russia will remain uh, sort of a major supplier for india but again i think that the the longer term trend will be uh a way and not not just as uh, out of choice on on india's part and with this rebuilding of the indian navy which route do you think they're looking to go down will they go more towards the area denial and choke point focus like the australians have or focus on large capital ships like the us has or even focus very heavily on submarines like the russians have what direction is the future of the new delhi's navy so the one area where india has been somewhat successful on its domestic um um uh, defense manufacturing side and and i've been quite critical and i remain quite skeptical of a, a lot of the promises of indigenization particularly over like short term indigenization but one area of some success has been in shipbuilding particularly smaller hull vessels so for coast guards uh frigates um so there is uh you know the 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 naval shipbuilding has been has been not bad and india has actually started to export some uh small offshore patrol vessels to small island countries in the indian ocean in other areas for example i mean this was a particularly strange issue where there was an order for frigates from russia where the engines had to be were were actually manufactured in ukraine and so after 2014 india actually had to buy the the the, the engines separately from the ukrainians uh Uh, and the the ships from the russians uh so you know i i think there are some legacy orders like that uh 
but you know where will it go uh, there are some uh, french uh, made diesel electric submarines that are being delivered right now so that'll, that'll be the newest addition to the submarine fleet there's some hope for uh, another order of uh, of submarines but uh, the there's currently an open competitive bidding process in place for that uh, with uh, initially about six manufacturers interested that may have widowed down to about two or three um, uh, but those are foreign, largely foreign providers, and many of them uh, now, essentially the Indian government is insisting on more and more of the components to be made in India, uh, which, is, which is pretty common. Um, there is a bit of a debate on about uh, how much uh, it, the Navy should rely on aircraft carriers, uh, and there's question marks about another new uh, aircraft carrier, whether it is worth it. Um, and the, essentially the Navy seems to want it and feel there is a need for it. But others feel like it would be quite wasteful and that uh, funding could be used by the Navy more effectively to develop infrastructure, more permanent infrastructure on many of India's island territories. So that, that debate is still underway uh, as to how much carriers will, will matter in the future. Well, if they do look down the road of building permanent facilities, do you think they'll be inside India's territory or they might be in places like Oman or East Africa and they're building up a network of Indian bases around the Indian Ocean? So, uh, I mean, as far as I know, uh, there is, I mean, this has been reported, there are only um, uh, somewhat uh, permanent, sort of, at least infrastructure in place uh, being developed by India in the Maldives and, and Mauritius. Um, there were some reported plans for Seychelles that has been um, um, complicated by political opposition there. You know, I, I think basing is, is always going to be very complicated because it, it has now become very politically sensitive, in, including in small island countries. Um, the U.S. is experiencing this in the South, and Australia is experiencing this in the South Pacific, that, uh, you know, it, it requires, um, uh, it, it does require the support and um, uh, acquiescence of uh, a, a local government, um, and particularly in sort of more democratic societies, where there are changes in governments frequently, that it's often hard to sustain that. Um, I mean, you also find that even in the Philippines, where uh, you know uh, President Duterte threatened to uh, revoke a visiting forces agreement there. So, I, I'm not sure basing is necessarily the future, uh, whether for India or for anybody else. We're not going to see a, a proliferation of, of too many bases, with with some exceptions. Um, the you know the Chinese presence in Djibouti being an example. Uh, what I do think we'll have is more uh, flexible agreements where uh, that will essentially allow India to use facilities for replenishment, um, landing rights, uh, sometimes on a case-by-case -case basis, but in a way that is much more sensitive to the sovereignty of, of these other countries. And so we have seen, for example, uh, Indian P-8 aircraft use um, uh, Oman as a, you know, a landing ground for operations in the Gulf of Aden, uh, again, with the, uh, with the acquiescence of the, the local government. Um, so I suspect we'll see a lot more of that in, in, in the future, and particularly as uh, competition heats up in the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, China uses at least five ports in the Indian Ocean for uh, resupply and replenishment uh, from, from Pakistan West. Um, and so we, you, know, you have a significant US presence, you have a significant French presence in, in Djibouti and Abu Dhabi and, and um, uh, Reunion. Um, you have a so uh, you have a Japanese uh, small Japanese embedded base in, in in Djibouti. So you know the Western Indian Ocean is becoming more crowded, um, and uh, it's just off of uh, India's western seaboard. So 
I, I do think we'll see a more active presence there, but I, I, I think sort of in many cases, basing will, will actually not be necessary. Uh, and in some cases, it may just be a logistical step too far. One of India's major areas of investment seems to be the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, with the islands situated on the northern end of the Malacca Strait. Is India hoping to turn these islands into a sort of Gibraltar for the eastern Indian Ocean? I mean, I, you know, the Andaman and Nicobar Islands are strategically important uh, just by, by virtue of their geography. Um, and there is a major Indian uh, base at Port Blair, uh, the capital. Um, they've recently opened up another base in the north. Uh, it's called INS Kohasa. Uh, there is a, a submarine and a facility and, and uh, aircraft landing strip in the south um, uh, in the Nicobar Islands. Um, so there, there has been a sort of... Um, uh, a slow uh, increase in in the military uh, presence and and again an ability sometimes just to reach places so it's not not actually having more assets or a, a heavier footprint it's actually just having better facilities to to operate in, in the broader region so you don't see these islands becoming the Diego Garcia 2.0 which for people unaware Diego Garcia is a large mostly US operated naval base on a small island in the Indian Ocean well, not not for others. So 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 far, the the uh, the Indian Navy has been you know pretty protective of it. Uh, they do some exercises where they allow uh, you know uh, occasionally other uh, countries. Usually, it's a small presence from other countries to participate in that. But you know, it's not going to be a major multi. At least on the near future, there's a lot of hesitation by making it a sort of major multilateral. Um, uh, presence in, in in some ways, I think it was somebody in the navy said, Indian navy said, sort of, you know, we don't want others getting in our way there. So um, th- there's also a very tricky issue. There's a there's a legal issue on Diego Garcia, which is it's you know in, in, embroiled in a dispute between uh, the the governments of the UK and Mauritius, and India has essentially taken Mauritius aside in in, in that dispute, and that has sort of complicated. Uh, both India's ability to make use of Diego Garcia and therefore offer any kind of reciprocal access uh, to the Andaman uh, and Nicobar Islands for for the U.S. So uh, that 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 has added a further uh, wrinkle of uh, a complicating wrinkle in in and otherwise sort of mostly cooperative relationship in the region. Do you think we'll ever get a base sharing agreement then between even just the Quad members? where navies from Japan or India or the United States and Australia can all use each other's facilities to refuel or resupply. I, I don't think basing is, uh, you know, basing in India is going to be very complicated uh, because, again, you run into, you know, uh, just to give you an example, you know, Japan and Australia recently entered into a reciprocal access agreement, um, which uh, essentially allows for, it, it provides a sort of legal regime for uh, Australian and Chinese, uh, I'm sorry, Australian and Japanese military officers uh, to be positioned in each on each other's soil, um, and uh, kind of a prerequisite to, to basing, and uh, you know it, it, even that was extremely complicated because it ran into amongst other issues, it ran into to, to the question of uh, the death penalty, which Japan still has and Australia does not. And uh, that was that proved quite a, a tricky thing to, to resolve. So all I'm saying is, like, it, it, as difficult as it was between Japan and Australia, it'll be infinitely more difficult involving India, just because of very different legal regimes, and 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 it's un, it's unlikely that India will sort of, you know, it, it's unlikely for two reasons. But one, India doesn't necessarily need that presence there. Uh, uh, but it, even if it did want it, it, it will actually be 
sort of uh, somewhat complicated by these factors. So I, I don't see sort of I, I, the costs are moving towards that kind of joint basing. I mean, there, there's a pre-existing U.S. presence in Japan, of course, and a small one in Australia. But uh, I don't think the Quad is going to move towards that, nor is that sort of the need. I think it's, it's fulfilling much more of a burden-sharing role where Japan and Australia and India and the U.S. are able to operate to the best of their own capabilities in areas where they deem um, a, a great national security interest to themselves, but where they coordinate with each other um, and, and therefore don't have to duplicate each other's efforts. Well, how far do these agreements actually go if India was, let's say invaded by Pakistan, would Australia or the United States come to India's aid? Or frankly, the agreement's more designed to fight China and the South China Sea? So uh, it's not a mutual defense treaty. There's, you know, that's that's not on the card. So it's not, def- in that sense, it's, it's very much not analogous to NATO or anything quite like it. But it, uh, and, and, you know, uh, for example, there was this issue even of, you know, India not supporting uh, the US on uh, Ukraine, for example, uh, and Japan and Australia did, they're, they're older allies of the US. Um, but, you know, I don't think the Quad's purpose is actually to, uh, that's, that's not, there's not an expectation on anyone's part that they will all, all join, band together to, um, uh, deal with all security contingencies involving all any of those actors. You know, India is not not going to be jo- uh, involved in a North Korea-related contingency uh, that will involve the U.S. and Japan quite directly, and possibly Australia indirectly. So uh, uh, there are a whole range of other contingencies that that I, I don't think the, the 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 Quad will automatically kick in as a sort of uh, a combined force. Um, there uh, there will be uh, you know I think degrees of cooperation. You know, I'd say today, if there was a sort of India-Pakistan crisis, there would be a lot more sympathy and, and perhaps indirect support, and by, by which I mean, you know, it could be military assistance, but, you know, intelligence sharing. Uh, today, uh, uh, India could benefit from some of that because of its quad uh, relationships uh, in a way that it could would not have, say, in 2008 or nine when, when there was a major crisis between India and Pakistan. So going forward, who do you think will hold the majority of the power in the Indian Ocean? Is it said to become an Indian and Quad-like, or is the Indian Ocean about to become the next South China Sea? Um, so it may not be. So you know, the South China Sea is quite uh, unique uh, because there were these relatively recent historical claims on the related to the Nine Dashed Line, which is China sort of in the early. Uh, in the early 20th century and then sort of more forcefully after the early 1990s, uh, claiming the uh, 1980s actually, claiming uh, the South territory of the South China Sea on historical ground. Uh, there isn't that kind of historical claims issue in the Indian Ocean, but you know, who knows, you know, the Chinese can make something up uh, 50 years from now. Uh, but as of now, there is no sort of so China is not party to any disputes in the Indian Ocean uh, region. Uh, that being said, uh, China's in the process of one of the largest shipbuilding uh, plans in history, uh, in terms of just the tonnage of naval warships that they are churning out, uh, is on a is on an unbelievably massive scale. And it's only a matter of time before, because they're hemmed in in the first island chain in the Western Pacific, uh, it's only a matter of time before, uh, we've, we've already seen essentially a permanent presence after late 2008 in, of, of uh, the PLA Navy in the Indian Ocean. It's only a matter of time before that, that becomes much larger. 
So I think everyone is bracing for this moment where you have a, a very active Chinese, very large active Chinese military presence in the Indian Ocean region. Uh, and that is what is sort of driving in some ways a lot of activity on the part of India and on the part of many of India's partners. And this includes a country, you know, France, which has sort of uh, uh, island territory on the other end of the Indian Ocean near, you know, uh, near Madagascar, uh, to Australia, to, you know, uh, to the obviously the US and Japan. So, uh, so I think that is actually the sort of scenario that that I think is the sort of operating scenario that that seems to be animating both India and its partners uh, in the Indian Ocean. So, what comes now? The Biden administration has been showing that the U.S. will be taking the Indian Ocean far more seriously than any other president has, with promises to build up assets throughout the area. But much like the tree stump I still need to pull out of my backyard, it continues to get pushed back as other priorities come in. So the US is planning to put money aside for Indian Ocean assets. But every time the Middle East goes into revolution, or Russia invades Ukraine, or China makes a move in the Pacific, planners will be deciding between a 2035 problem and a 2022 problem. For now, it's India that seems to be the front runner to hold the momentum in the Indian Ocean. But it too has priorities pulling it every which way. Generals and planners in New Delhi have to decide, should they be building up mountain groups to fight in Kashmir or along the Chinese border where they're continuously harassed? Should it be building anti-terror groups instead to fight rebels in the West and South? Should it be investing in internal control forces in case the next time there are farm protests, it kicks into a full-scale revolution? Should they be worried about Myanmar now that the rest of the world has isolated them? Should they continue to prioritize troops along the Pakistani frontier as that country continues to destabilize and water is beginning to be a problem. India is fighting on multiple fronts and half fighting on all of them isn't the solution to the problem. So what should India's strategy be going forward? Which arms race should India put its chips behind? Because whilst the mountains and the Pakistani frontier are important, the southern front contains 80% of the world's trade. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. It's been very strange for me to write an episode talking about issues that are happening just 30 minutes away from where I grew up, but there you go. If you are a Patreon, I'm glad to say keep an eye on your inboxes as later on this week we'll be announcing our next round of Patreon events. But if you want to keep up to date with all the upcoming events as well as panels and everything else we're up to, you can find all of our links on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz, Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Rowan Pike, who's the latest patron to sign up as of time of recording. This show would only be possible with the support of listeners like Rowan, who donate a small amount of money each week to help us keep the show going, and we cannot thank him enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we'd greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode on the arms race in the Indian Ocean is thanks to Rowan. Cheers, mate. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is India's Naval Strategy and Asian Security by Ani Mekaji for a look into the doctrines of New Delhi. The second is China's Grand Strategy by Jeff Raby for a look at Australia's perspective in the Indian Ocean. And the third is Contest for the Indo-Pacific by Rory Medcalf. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Michael Kugelman, Michael Wesley, and Dhruva Jaishankar. All of you were absolutely fantastic to work with on this one. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Danielle Isabella, 
Andrew Garbery and Robbie Sutton are research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our usual second voice of Aranus, who unfortunately couldn't be here this week, and Ross Crabtree, our media specialist who filled in on bumpers today, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Garden, our production assistant. I know I say it every week, but this really is the best team around. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. Until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.